Israel then won the war, and after six days they tripled the size of the country, and they were ready to negotiate. But the Arabs said no, not just to the 67 borders, but to Israel's existence. It's important to remember that win or lose, Israel is non-existent in their eyes. So the Israelis remained there. But what about the status of the territories, right, which are always called occupied, a politically loaded term, the occupied territories of occupation, which only seems to apply to Israel and is hardly ever used when other territorial disputes are discussed. Hamas have the singular intention of murdering as many Jews as possible. I mean, do you know that the Iron Dome, which is only a defensive tool, has cost $2.9 billion in the past 11 years, which gives you an idea of how many missiles Hamas has sent over in that time, how destructive they are. No country would allow that. I mean, yes, I feel bad that innocents died in Gaza, but I don't feel the wrong decision was made or that it was illegal at all. And therefore, when there says the Rambam, unashamedly and openly, he says, when the real Mashiach appears, the ground will have been broken, the way will have been paved, and people will see immediately, and he puts it in quite against dark terms, that what they were taught by their forebears was lies and deception. And yet the core idea of a messianic correction will be apparent. Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back to the second part of Difficult Questions. And this is a very unusual podcast because although I am based here in London, Rabbi Hirsch is currently based in Yerushalayim in Israel, having spent two days seeing some of the places which were attacked and hearing from all types of people that were affected by the war. Um, Rabbi Hirsch, you've sent me a few pictures throughout the past few days. And like we discussed in our first ever episode from the Rambam, it's very important to feel what Eden are going through. And uh, judging by the pictures I've seen, you've certainly had that experience in the past few days, and I'm sure you're going to be sharing some of that with us later on. But can we just start with the question that we left off with last time? And that was, why did Israel go to war in 1967? Okay, so yes, hello from Yushalayim. Perhaps um, a little background. People assume that uh, between 48 and 73, there were four wars between Israel and the surrounding Arab countries, and that although the Arab countries didn't have any diplomatic relationships with Israel, it was pretty much like today with, I don't know, Lebanon or Iraq, the occasional exchange of fire, no big deal, and the rest of the time was peaceful, which is a major misunderstanding. There was not a three-month period in all those 25 years that Jews weren't being killed. And none of the Arab states were prepared to do anything in 1949 other than sign a ceasefire, but no agreements were ever made. Not because, you know, simply they didn't recognize Israel, but because they made it clear that Israel has to go. They never changed their minds on this. And that meant that the war continued. There were raids on each other's countries ongoing. In 1955, an entire Egyptian army unit crossed into the Negev in, in army uniform, right? Israel then retaliated. They crossed back into Egypt. 
ship attacked an army base in December. There were 300 Israeli soldiers um, that crossed into the uh, demilitarized zone between Syria and Eretz Israel. And the borders were completely unfeasible because it's literally where the soldiers got to in 1949. And sometimes you had houses on one side and the farm on the other side. To give an example, Chaim Herzog wrote the following, and I quote, These no man's lands in Yerushalayim were created because Dayan and Tal had used a thick marker to delineate the city line on a map. The line was two or three millimeters wide on the map, which translated to 40 or 60 meters on the ground. And their line covered houses, whole streets, indiscriminately. In the heat of the summer, the marker tends to melt and had covered certain areas, thus widening the city line even further. Neither side could agree on what belonged to whom, and people were killed because of the thickness of a pencil. So the Arabs always looked for justice or revenge, and in May 67, everything escalated over four weeks. Egypt at the time was the biggest player, was the biggest enemy. They mobilized 100 out of 160,000 of their army, including all seven divisions on the 16th of May. And then the UN peacekeeping force, which was in the Sinai Desert, was forced out by Egypt on the 18th. In the words of the Egyptian delegate to the UN, we've decided to terminate the UN presence. And we're talking almost 4,000 soldiers who had been in place for a decade. And they all, you know, meekly complied. And now there's no buffer zone between Israel and Egypt, which there had been for a decade. And NASA now moves his troops into that area. It's overrun with Egyptian tanks, soldiers. And what did the world say? Well, if you allow the UN peacekeepers into Israel, making their tiny country even smaller, you know, the no man's land should be built within Israel. You know, thanks a lot. On the 23rd of May, Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping, through which over 30% of Israeli goods arrived in Israel. And by the way, the alternative meant to go around the entire African coast, because the Suez Canal had long ago been basically illegally closed to Israel. And this is the precedent to a full-scale war, especially in the Arab world, where you can't just pull back your soldiers because that's losing face. And there's economic warfare. So Israel is being targeted in international waters. What did the United Nations do as a result? Oh, nothing. They basically abandoned Israel to its fate. Um, the USA tried to get a task force together. But as soon as the UK and Canada said no, nothing happened, which obviously severely undermined Israel's trust in the international community being able to prevent conflict in the region. And then you have the rhetoric. In a speech delivered on the 26th of May, the president of Egypt declared, the blockade of Sharm el-Sheikh means our waging an all-out war against Israel. This is going to be a total war. Our fundamental aim is the annihilation of Israel. And when that happened, so the Russian delegate to the Security Council said it sees no adequate grounds for any haste in convening a Security Council and the dramatization of the situation. And the French delegates expressed doubts as to the usefulness of holding an urgent meeting. Interestingly, the UK felt differently. And they said that the most urgent and dangerous issue of all, the question of the right of passage for shipping of all nationalities through the Straits of Tehran should be addressed. And it is also speculated 
that Egypt intended invading Israel on the 27th. So Abba Eban, who's in Washington, he tells the USA, who told the USSR, whose ambassador in Egypt hauled Nasser out of bed at midnight and told him not to launch an attack. Difficult to know if he did or did not. Going back to the rhetoric, um, Hafez al-Assad, who was then Syria's defence minister, declared, Our forces are now ready to initiate the act of liberation. I believe that the time has come to enter into a battle of annihilation. The Iraqi prime minister predicted that there will be practically no Jewish survivors. And on June 3rd, Iraq sent its planes to the Jordanian airbases. Then you have Ahmed Shukiri, the PLO's delegate, who said Arabs are prepared to march and liberate the country. What should happen to the Israelis if the Arab attack succeeded? Well, those who survive will remain in Palestine, but it is estimated that none will survive. And joining this call was Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, Morocco. So not from one quarter, from all. And this is absolute genocide. We're not talking about a land grab or return of refugees. And the last time the Arabs engaged in this type of rhetoric, they invaded and they almost wiped Israel out in 1948. And the time before that was Hitler. So it's twice within living memory. And the call up for Israel itself was financially crippling. You have to remember that uh, the country had only existed for 20 years. Now, Israel also had superior intelligence on the ground. So from May 17th, you have an Egyptian officer in Sinai who is radioing. In fact, he even was radioing on the 4th of June after the war started about the losses that the Egyptian Air Force sustained. So all in all, the Arabs were interested in wiping us out clearly. Whether they would have acted is a question, but Israel attacked first on the 4th of June. And many see that as a case of anticipatory attack of self-defense. Others see it as a preemptive strike, but clearly not of a war of aggression. Then we move one day later to the 5th of June 67. The Prime Minister, Levi Eshkol, transmitted through the UN a message to King Hussein asking Jordan to refrain from hostilities. And he said, we are engaged in defensive fighting on the Egyptian sector. We shall not engage ourselves in any action against Jordan unless Jordan attacks us. And we'll come back to this. And Israel even allowed shelling to happen. 250 Jews were wounded, 20 were killed, because they said if we exercise restraint, it might not happen. And Hussein later wrote that we were misinformed by Egypt on the first day we were attacking Tel Aviv. And at 1 p.m., they crossed the armistice line. And that's why war happened. Israel then won the war. And after six days, they tripled the size of the country and they were ready to negotiate. But the Arabs said no, not just to the 67 borders, but to Israel's existence. It's important to remember that win or lose, Israel is non-existent in their eyes. So the Israelis remained there. But what about the status of the territories, right, which are always called occupied, a politically loaded term, the occupied territories, occupation, which only seems to apply to Israel and is hardly ever used when other territorial disputes are discussed. And there are many. There are over 200 current disputes, Russia, China, the Sahara, and the nomenclature there is disputed. You know, for instance, the US Department of State refers to um, Kashmir as a disputed area. And um, the Persian Gulf island of Zubara, which was claimed by both Qatar and Bahrain, was described by the court as disputed territory. Not Israel, though. 
There it's occupied. What does occupied really mean? What difference is there between the 200 disputes that you just mentioned and the struggle so that we have? The difference is in the colouring, um, in the how heated the discussion is. The Palestinians use this term repeatedly because, firstly, it justifies violence and terrorism. Our land is occupied. Secondly, the Palestinian demand of Israel to end the occupation leaves no room for territorial compromise, which is not the language of the UN Security Council Resolution 242. And thirdly, the language of occupation invokes memories of, you know, Nazi-occupied Europe during the Second World War, and it links those things to Israel. Um, we are the new Nazis. But according to international law, there's a distinction between situations of aggressive conquest and territorial disputes, which arise after a war of uh, self-defense. But these places are always called illegal, and they're called the biggest barrier to peace. Those are John Kerry's words in, I think, 2016. Um, so illegal settlements, occupied territories. Let's have a look at why that is not the case. Firstly, as we mentioned, Israel asked for peace in 67 and had the door slammed in their face, and they became therefore a de facto caretaker with no one to dialogue. Uh, secondly, as we mentioned last week, the West Bank didn't belong to Jordan. We didn't take it from anybody, as explained, and therefore it's ridiculous to call it occupied territory. Thirdly, Jordan, as we just mentioned, fought a preemptive war. They invaded, and therefore it is self-defense. All those three make Israel the custodians of the West Bank. Also, UN Resolution 242, as we mentioned in part two of these series, um, passed in 1967, deliberately does not say that Israel has to withdraw from all territories, despite the Soviet delegate and the Arab states pushing for the word all. The British said it would have been wrong to demand that Israel return to its positions of June 4th because those positions were undesirable and artificial. As we mentioned, it was just where the army stopped. And so did the USA. They were arbitrarily just created after the war. They weren't agreed upon by a single party to the conflict. And anyway, Israel had already withdrawn from 94% of the territories when it gave up the Sinai in 77-78, the Gaza Strip, portions of the West Bank, besides for which, which no one mentions, that 242 requires there be peace treaties in place before Israel hands anything back. And therefore, under customary law, under the Hague Convention, Israel is obligated to administer the area until peace was achieved. But there are far more reasons. Another important point to consider. You always hear that Israelis are encroaching on Palestinian land, but the West Bank Palestinians are not ruled by Israel because 90% of them live in area A and B. What is A and B? Area A is completely under Palestinian civil and administrative control exclusively. It's where the Palestinian Authority has its headquarters in Ramallah, whereas Area B is governed by Palestinian civil control. The security is joint Israeli-Palestinian, but in matters of, uh, I don't know, transport, infrastructure, tourism, it's all Palestinian. And A and B are about 40% of the West Bank in territorially, but they make up 90% of the West Bank's Palestinian population. And by the way, Israeli Jews are not allowed into Area A by law. 
And then you have Area C, which covers about 60% of Judea and Samaria. And we hear of the uh, illegal Jewish settlements. It's on a tiny piece of land, which is approximately 1% to 2% of the West Bank, and mostly near the green line of Israel proper. So that's a factor. Another important fact. Since 2005, with one exception, Eviatar, there have been no new legal settlements anywhere in the West Bank, nor even an expansion over the borders in size of existing settlements. For instance, Efrat has not grown larger. The only growth has been internal, meaning more apartments. You know, there are an extra 16 kids living in Efrat, and that is the biggest barrier to peace. But of course, they're not being anti-Semitic. And then possibly the most important major hidden fact, hidden, you know, in the back of a cupboard. And I doubt many, if any of our listeners know this, illegal Palestinian settlements. And I mean in Area C. Thousands of illegal Palestinian constructions, village clusters, agricultural tracts, they crisscross Area C, and almost all of them violate the 1993 and 95 Oslo Accords, which specify that Area C is under full Israeli administrative control, and no one else is allowed to authorize building there. And, you know, according to Israeli watchdogs, illegal Palestinian settlements and infrastructure exists in 250 areas, and they are supported by more than 600 kilometers of illegally constructed access roads. And it's done in broad daylight, and it's announced often in the press. And the funding, which is hundreds of millions of euros annually, comes from the EU, all illegal. There's one of the European Union area sea development programs is 300 million euro annual, and it's budgeted to reach 1.5 billion within a few years. And then you have the... um, Uh, Germany, France, Spain, in 2012, they gave a grant of 1.2 million euro to establish kindergartens for unrecognized villagers. In other words, villagers built illegally. They're creating a de facto Palestinian state on the ground. Anyone out there ever heard of these things? And critically, Most of these new Palestinian settlements are not sort of the natural spread of existing towns spreading further outwards. They are strategically scattered to effectively carve up Area C and sometimes surround Jewish villages. So you're saying that there's many Palestinians building things illegally in Israeli land. Why are the Israelis letting them get away with it? Why don't they just stop them or destroy them? Because you have to go to court. And that can take years to decide. And meanwhile, they're still building. There is no specific time. Each case is different. Some cases were opened 15 years ago. And even if the court agrees, if Israel then takes, you know, enforcement actions, I don't know, bulldozers, there are international headlines. There are EU accusations of war crimes. There are threats of sanctions. There's close-up photos of weeping people. Being legally right does very little to mitigate the damage. And the EU and the NGOs and the illegal settlers, they all know this very well. I mean, to the extent that at the end of July 2019, when the Israeli cabinet voted 
to authorise an extra 715 permits for the Palestinians. The Palestinian response from the Prime Minister of the PA, uh, Mohammed Shtaya, uh, said, we don't need permission from the occupying powers to build our homes on our lands. The Oslo classification of land A, B and C no longer exists. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. And you often hear how the occupation of the territories is against the Geneva Convention to which Israel is a signatory. Except that's garbage, because the Fourth Geneva Protocol refers to the forcible transfer of civilians onto occupied territories and was drafted post the Holocaust in 1949 specifically to prevent the creation of ghettos and such like by occupying powers. It was drafted basically to help the Jews. It doesn't refer to civilians voluntarily moving into a settlement. And they are being twisted, these protocols, beyond anything they were ever made for, all to make Israel's actions illegal. Basically, in sum, these are, at worst, disputed territories, which both sides are building on for civilians, but you never hear any of that internationally. And then you ask, you know, are the world bodies biased? Now, it's true. There are outposts which, even under Israeli law, have been declared illegal. Caravans here and there, uh, you know, pop up places and they exist and they get lots of press, but they're not part of the final settlement agreements, just like, I don't know, Yamit in the Sinai in 77. So depending on which question you've been asked is which of these to pick from to answer. But behind all of this, all, all this illegal settlement business is baloney. Israel has full legal rights to the land. We've got to listen this through to get it, but it is important. In international law, the entire area of what is nowadays referred to as Palestine was initially part of the British mandate until they left on the 14th of May, 48. At that point, it would default entirely to the two new proclaimed states, a Jewish one and an Arab one, because the universal law for determining the borders of a new state takes on the boundaries of the pre-existing administrative unit that becomes the borders at the moment of changeover. It's called uti perseditis juris, which roughly means what you possess by law. It was used in former Yugoslavia when it was carved up in South America, in the Far East. It's been universally applied for the last 130 years. And it was even used for mandates in the Middle East for other countries. And, you know, it takes place by treaty, by common usage. Now, what happened in 1948 was that only the Jews proclaimed a state over that territories. And the Jews never proclaimed any specific borders. They just called it Eretz Yisrael, if you look at the Declaration of Independence. And since the Arabs didn't proclaim any state in that territory, preferring to reject the UN resolution and go to war, and they never lay claim to any part of the territory, as a result, since Israel was the only state to emerge, it occupies by international law all of the territory that has just been vacated. It sounds mad, it's international law. And... The language used by all the countries in the dispute for the next 20 years was always and only the former British mandate, which means we are talking about one tract of land. No other area was ever mentioned in ceasefire treaties. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. 
At Jordan's insistence, the 1949 armistice line, remember, there's no peace treaty, there's just a ceasefire. The Israeli Jordanian, which was the boundary until 67, it wasn't a recognized border. It was just a line separating where my soldiers can stand and your soldiers can stand. And the armistice agreement specifically stated provisions of this agreement being dictated exclusively by military considerations. That was the only reason, and therefore they did not have a country there. But what about Jordan being there until 67, all the way from 48? Well, Jordan just seized the area. It was never allocated to them. No one recognized it internationally, as we mentioned last week. And they only did so two years later. Um, So, you know, at no relevance. So could you tell us a bit more about the UN partition plan in 1947, I believe November? So it's interesting. This legal ruling that I just mentioned would actually, in a way, override it for one very simple reason. UN resolutions that are passed in the General Assembly do not have any force of law, only if they are passed in the Security Council, and even then, not always. So it was a consideration. It was a plan. It was an idea, but nobody is legally bound by it. So we asked this in one of our episodes before to the professor, but can we just go back to the subject of the bombing and the deaths in Gaza? Because increasingly every day they're getting, you know, it's it's numbering in the thousands. And of course, we can't, uh, the health ministry in Gaza is run by Hamas. So obviously these figures aren't uh, 100% accurate. But people are asking that it seems to be totally proportionate. However atrocious the massacre was, the Israeli response has been incredibly extensive. And people are saying that the siege was illegal, you know, denying water and food to civilians. So now that we're on the subject, and these are the difficult questions, Robert Hirsch, can you address it? Yes, sure. Israel firstly has a right to defend itself and therefore a right to kill Hamas. If someone declared war on your country and is waging a war from the middle of its civilian population, so what do you do? Do you defeat your enemy or do you allow your people to die because the enemy is among civilians? It's, you know, it's a davoposhet. Hamas sent more than four and a half thousand rockets raining down on Israeli cities after the 7th of October. Today, just today, in Israel, there were 30. Our group was in the Schneider's Children's Hospital when the sirens started and had to evacuate to the stairwell. You had, you know, little girls on, on a drip who had to run there with all their medical paraphernalia, kids. And we shouldn't try and destroy these missiles and the people who are behind it. Hamas have the singular intention of murdering as many Jews as possible. I mean, do you know that the Iron Dome, which is only a defensive tool, has cost $2.9 billion in the past 11 years, which gives you an idea of how many missiles Hamas has sent over in that time, how destructive they are. No country would allow that. I mean, yes, I feel bad that innocents died in Gaza, but I don't feel the wrong decision was made or that it was illegal at all. Hamas explicitly does not recognize Israel's right to one inch of soil in Palestine. This conflict is existential and they have a pay for slave policy. They pay people who kill Israelis. And, you know, as for the question of uh, proportionality in, in international law, it's got no bearing on how many casualties Hamas has inflicted versus how many casualties Israel has inflicted. It's nothing to do with that. It's rather that whenever a military campaign is undertaken, there needs to be an assessment of likely civilian casualties 
balanced out against the need for the military intervention. That is, that alone, is where proportionality exists under international law, which is, you know, many times in the 20th century. The bombing in World War II in Vietnam, the attacks on Afghanistan, the attacks on Iraq, where, by the way, there was a 66% civilian casualty, the hunt for ISIS, the Korean War, where there was a 74% casualty rate, the Gulf War in 91, where there was an 87% civilian casualty rate. In all of these cases, the Western powers saw civilian casualties as unfortunate but inevitable collateral damage and accepted by the Geneva Convention. Even the head of Hamas, Sinwar, said that the issue of military headquarters embedded in civilian populations posed a huge problem during the previous rounds of fire because that's exactly where they were. And then, of course, he said, we're taking care to move a large portion of the headquarters, mainly from towers and residential buildings and other places. So they were there. Um, and of course, we know for a fact that he never moved them. It was all just international pressure. And as you mentioned in your question, by the way, how many have been killed? 20,000? How do we know that? From the uh, Hamas-run health ministry? Uh, just like the hospital strike, which was done by a Hamas missile and not from Israel, which they claimed, while they thought it was an Israeli missile, killed 500, and now it's 200, which is a lot less. And another question, how many of these people killed are terrorists? So if we say, let's say they're 15,000 dead, but if 6,000 of them are terrorists, then your figure of 20,000 has just been halved, and it also shows just how many terrorists there are there. But that never distinction never appears on the BBC or anywhere. The, the figure of 20,000 is never broken down into terrorists and civilians, ever. But I wanted to discuss the siege, which I asked about as well, the withholding the fuel, the withholding the foods. The foods. Is that legal? So the first thing we have to realize is who we're dealing with. Hamas controls with dictatorship what goes on in Gaza. They have stolen, uh, you know, repurposed international aid for themselves, including, by the way, in this conflict on October 16th, it stole fuel and medical equipment from UNRWA. And at that point, UNRWA tweeted that their school had been raided by Hamas and supplies taken at gunpoint, although UNRWA quickly deleted that tweet, but not before enough Jews had seen it and forwarded it. And a military force is not required to supply its enemy. Uh, at the point where the UN agreed to check on the delivery, so fine, so that's when they started up again. Also, it has to be borne in mind that Hamas destroyed the main border crossings through which humanitarian aid is delivered, as well as the electric line supplying power to the Gaza Strip, which, by the way, the Israelis were basically providing free of charge. And Hamas knew that they would be destroying these entry points because they had all these battle plans laid out precisely. So who created the siege? Who prevented electricity, etc., from flowing? And a pipeline was opened into Gaza for water on Tuesday, the 24th of October, was fully operational the next day, providing 14 million litres per day. On October 28th, Israel opened a second water pipeline into Gaza. So the total was 28.5 million litres of water being supplied. And the third pipeline, uh, which was knocked out by Hamas, is still being repaired. And by the way, the source for all this was a press briefing given by uh, Colonel uh, Elad Goren. Did the BBC mention that Israel is supplying water? No. 
And, you know, Hamas has prepared for this war for months. They've got plenty of supplies. They don't share those resources with the Gazans in need. They use it for terror purposes instead. If America is prepared to accompany every shipment and guarantee the delivery, fine. But anyway, now that the Egyptian crossing is reopened and goods are being supplied, basically the whole question is irrelevant. It was a a question that existed for four weeks, but uh, no, 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 everyone still asks the question. Another question that is constantly asked and Israel gets a lot of flack for is the treatment of Palestinians. People claim it's like the apartheid. There's no citizenship. Um, Israel rules over Gaza. It's, some have even said, it's an open-air prison. Now, of course, there are answers to the actual 2 million Israeli Arab minority. Um, They are full citizens. They enjoy equal rights. They have representation in the Knesset and the Supreme Court. And in fact, there's many clips of Israeli Arabs saying that they wouldn't like to live anywhere else other than Israel in the Middle East. But specifically the non-Israeli Palestinian refugees, whether it be in the West Bank, whether it be in the Gaza Strip, what would your response be to it being like an apartheid? Okay, so we have to understand that the, you know the term often used is they're in a prison. In a prison, people can't leave, and they certainly don't come back voluntarily. Yet, under normal circumstances, Israel and Egypt both allow goods and people to enter and exit, and they both have land borders. And although it's subject to inspection, all non-military goods are allowed into Gaza. But can a Palestinian, what are the facts? Can a Palestinian actually leave Gaza? Can they leave the West Bank whenever they wish? Let's put together some of your first question with this. Uh, We have to understand that going back to this definition of it being a jail, people can walk around, you know, outside their houses, call their friends and family. They can go to school. They can, I don't know, plant flowers. They can take a a course in photography. Uh, They can put in an order to Amazon. They've got got, uh, education, health, building. Can they travel? So actually from Gaza, look this up recently, they can go to, I think, 52 or 53 countries. But from the West Bank... They can cross every day. It's open every day, the Allenby Bridge. They cross into Jordan. Now, there is a limit. I think they can only go for three years initially, uh, but they can leave, especially from the West Bank, but even from Gaza. They might have problems with Egypt at times because Egypt closed the crossing for a couple of years, but that's not an Israel's problem. And therefore, prison is a very negative and wrong, ignorant analogy. How about the poverty levels there? It's known that Gaza is a very poor place. Is that because of Israel? So Gaza is indeed poor. The per capita GDP in 2021 was $5,600 per person, which is low. But holding back Gaza's economy is Hamas. They're, you know, theft, corruption. The biggest drain on Gaza's economy is Hamas. And we know that by the hundreds of tunnels that exist and the tens of thousands of rockets who paid for them? How were they constructed? And that mismanages Gaza's economy. It's on a rampant scale. And therefore, the population don't get the benefits of what is being given to them. There is a publication I came across recently called the Palestinian Center of Policy. It's based in Ramallah. It's got nothing to do with the Israelis. It's it's, it's run by Arabs. And it carries out polls. And there's dozens of questions in there. In December 17, One of the, I don't know, 30 or 40 questions, which was given to over 2,000 people, was, do you feel you can criticize the Palestinian Authority without fear? 
And 59% said, no, we can't criticize them without fear. And 38% said, yes. So, you know, what type of existence do they have internally? There is a prison there, but it's created by the Palestinian Authority. I mean, another question in that survey was recently the PA in the West Bank and Hamas and Hamas authorities in Gaza have detained many journalists. Are you worried about the future of liberties in Palestine? And 80% of the Palestinians asked said yes, an overwhelming majority. Two thirds of them want Abbas to resign. So it's a very restrictive and corrupt regime internally. And bottom line, there is only one apartheid state in the region, and that's Gaza, which refuses, first of all, to allow Jews any rights or Israel the ability to exist from the river to the sea. Their charter is geared towards the annihilation of the Jewish people. And internally, there's no pluralism, no personal liberty, whereas Israel has made peace with six Arab countries, shown its ability, its willingness. Which enemy has Hamas ever made peace with? Now, it's true that, you know, perhaps on, I don't know, the far right in Israel, there is rhetoric and language which talks in similar fashion. But that talk, and 90% of the democratically elected political body, and 90% of the country does not talk that way. And therefore, there is a reason that, as you mentioned earlier, two-thirds of Arab Israelis want to continue being in Israel and living there. So, you know, before we go into the facts, we've got to think about what type of accusations are being made against Israel, how extreme they are, and, and what they actually mean in English. And we also have to realize that no one wants the Palestinians Jordan. In 1970, the PLO almost caused a civil war there. 20,000 Palestinians were killed. Lebanon then threw out the Palestinians in the 1980s. They don't appear to be all that peaceful within their own. So, you know, and really until there's a, a, a change of culture which allows coexistence, there can't be peace. And when we therefore look at a speech that Abbas gave to the EU in 2016, for which, by the way, he got a standing ovation and no criticism from any of the EU delegates listening. He said, the rabbis have just told the Jews in Israel to poison the wells of the Arabs. In other words, that they have issued a call for mass murder. This is what he's telling the EU, right? And then he added that terrorism worldwide will be eradicated if Israel withdraws from the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It's the Jews who caused all bloodshed and conflict. Now that is incitement, but he gets a standing ovation. And by the way, he's a Holocaust denier. His doctoral dissertation is on the subject of the Holocaust. He wrote it in Moscow in 1982, and he published a book based on his dissertation. It's written in Arabic, and although it's now online, and that website contains 17 other books, his is the only one that has not been translated out of Arabic because of what it says. And the illustration on the inside cover of the book shows two soldiers wearing helmets, one bearing the Nazi swastika and the other the Star of David. And these pictures leave basically no room for doubt that the message is that the Israeli soldier is the continuation of the Nazi soldier. And Nazi ideology became the same as Zionism. And by the way, this illustration is not found on the internet version of the book either. So, you know, Israel can't be expected to acquiesce to what's going on in their own backyard. We will come back still to the options that they have going forward. I just want to, uh, I, I would like to share some of the experiences of the past couple of days and make it perhaps a little bit clearer about what type of animals these people are. 
I want to share just a couple of points. There are many. We went to the Tel HaShomer Hospital and we visited a number of patients there, victims of the Gaza war. One of them was a religious civilian from uh, Kerem Shalom, which is just opposite Gaza. It was attacked on Shemini Atzeris itself. And this guy was in his house with his wife and six children. And they heard the shooting. So they ran into the safe room. And then they heard terrorists climbing in through the window. And he shouted out at them. This is what he told us. I'm armed. I will kill you all. Because he, was, he wanted to frighten them away because he was scared that otherwise they would come in and find them all and, and, and shoot them all. So Hamas came to the door of the strong room and they left an explosive device at the door which exploded and injured him, not his wife or any of the children. He took the force of that blast and for some reason they then left. They didn't check, they didn't throw any grenades in, which they did in so many other places. But he was injured, and he is lying there bleeding out. He lost his right arm from the elbow forwards. And in fact, he was bleeding so badly that when the helicopters finally landed there, they debated whether there was a point in even taking him to the hospital, because will he survive just the trip to the hospital? You know, when we saw him, he, he's walking, he's talking, and, and full of his conversation is full of emunah of Baruch Hashem, unbelievable. But what I want to mention is what was the mother doing with her six children while her husband was in this situation? Six kids, the eldest is 11, the youngest is one and a half. She said to them, children, I want you to think about the sudas hoido'o, about the thanksgiving that we will give to Hashem when this is all over. I mean, can you imagine that level of a munna? It is beyond anything we know. But you need to understand that that's what they're going through. That all six kids would have otherwise been killed without a shadow of a doubt. And you want a, a ceasefire? I mean, I have to tell you, going back to the Schneider's Hospital, all the children hostages who were released were taken to Schneider's. And of those children, 21 of them don't have either a father or a mother anymore because of what's happened. So we've got to be mitiaches to what's going on here. And I'll share one last thought for the moment. On uh, Tuesday evening, so two nights ago, we put on a sort of um, a dinner for teenage kids, refugees from Sterot, who are now living in Yushalayim. And a few of the kids shared their own stories. One of them was 13 years old. And she said that when they heard the sirens on Shabbos, on the 7th of October, she comes from a Shomer Shabbos family. So they didn't take the phones with them because it's regular. It's regular to go into the safe room. Can you imagine? It's regular to spend Shabbos in fear in the safe room. That's regular. And who starts the missiles each time? Who? You know, another kid spoke of the fact that at one stage there was knocking on the door and everyone in the apartment who had a gun in their hand opened it that way with the guns facing outwards because they didn't know who was behind that door. And when they got into the car afterwards, they drove to Beershava. They never stopped at any junction because the terrorists were shooting at junction points. And she was talking as if it's, you know, normal. I mean, there is deep trauma there, which will unfortunately emerge. But this is what they are going through. Wow. Rabbi Hirsch, thank you for that. It's a whole different podcast when it's uh, recorded from the scene. 
and having uh, at least five this the sixth episodes on it I mean, just a thought I had before when, you know, you've, I know you yourself have interviewed many Holocaust survivors. You've been to Poland, to Auschwitz, probably over 150 times. But visiting a modern day Auschwitz, which is practically what you've done in the past couple of days, perhaps not in the same scale, but certainly with the same intent and barbarism, killing as many Jews as possible. And this is in 2023, which is chilling. It's impossible to believe until you've seen it. And there's already denial going on. So thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. That was very powerful and certainly very chilling. And I know you're very short on time and you have a flight in a couple of hours. So I wish you a safe trip back and we'll record the rest of the podcast when you're back here in London. And of course, I wanted to give a huge shout out and thank you to Rabbi Kaufman from Rushalayim, who enabled this um, recording from overseas to happen. Rebsevi has a studio called Sida Media Studios, and it's a high-end creative agency um, that deals with marketing and podcast production. And Rebsevi is a fantastic guy. Um, he did ask us to just to mention a charity that he's very involved in called the Israel Select Charity Fund, which has already given I believe 2,700 pairs of tefillin for soldiers who have requested them. There's been a major religious uprising in Israel since October 7th, and it's an unbelievable cause. I mean, the soldiers are realizing now that the existence of Israel and the survival is due to miracles. And we've seen many who are taking on extra things for their spirituality. And there's been another 2,000 requests for pairs of tefillin. And we will put the link in the description below where you can give your charity money to them in order to enable it that to happen, as well as Zevi's contact details for any marketing or studio work that you need in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Hirsch, safe trip, and we'll see you soon. Rabbi Hirsch, Shalom Aleichem, and welcome back to London. It's... Uh, bit weird you're back in the studio we had only spoken a few hours ago on zoom and uh yeah hope you had a safe trip well i have to tell you we finished recording last night at five minutes to midnight got into my car drove straight to the airport and back here now baruch hashem through commitment so to continue the line of questioning where we left off why doesn't israel just end the occupation i mean even if the west bank doesn't belong to the palestinians what do they gain by not giving 5 million Palestinians independence? Okay, so this is a, a very important question. It's clearly an unproductive state of affairs for Israel to have to regulate some form of rule, at least from a security perspective, on the 5 million Palestinians externally. It really is a problem. But let's think about why would Israel do it and analyze the options they have and perhaps start with the word apartheid which means extreme discrimination within a country uh, such as uh, segregated seating, but really reaching across all areas, education, housing, freedom of expression, etc. And when this is done simply to oppress a group, it is apartheid. It's for power. But that's not the case in Israel. As we said, firstly, in all internal areas, they govern themselves. They, for instance, have a literacy rate of almost 98% higher than Portugal or Singapore. It's true there are checkpoints and travel within Israel is governed by police, but that is only and clearly a security concern given the level of terrorism that exists. Israel cannot sacrifice its citizens. One and a half thousand citizens have been killed by terror uh, since the year 2000. You know, the person I mentioned earlier who lost his arm in the terror attacks on 7th October, Amichai, 
13 years ago, his older brother was killed by terrorists in Hebron in the West Bank. And what do you think America would do if 60,000 Americans, which is pro rata equivalent, were killed in America by terrorists in 20 years? So the checkpoints stay. It's inconvenient. It might be strongly inconvenient. It cannot be removed when life is endangered every single year without let up. And there's a inconvenience as well, of course, the Israelis. Everywhere you go, you have to stand yes. and wait. Yep but not as much as to the Palestinians by any means. And that also answers the questions of our Egyptian comedian friend a few weeks ago. Why is there this level of exclusion in the West Bank when they aren't shooting rockets at Israel? So it's true, they haven't been as extreme, but shootings, bus bombings, knifings, these are monthly events, and there are attempts ongoing in the West Bank against Jews, which is why going back to those surveys, remember Palestinian surveys, if there were elections in the West Bank today, Hamas would get 50%, Abbas only 42%. And the locals want terror. According to their own data, 62% support a return to the armed intifada. 82% believe that Hamas's decision to launch the October the 7th offensive was correct. This is in the West Bank. 94% in the West Bank believe that Israel has committed war crimes since 7th of October, but only 5% believe that Hamas have. And this data is from the 13th of December. So going back to my question, why not pull out these areas? I mean, the entire world is demanding it, and you're answering it's because of terrorism. Okay. So, and perhaps to therefore, yes, how does Israel gain? If you read objective, genuine political journals, but I guess even from a logical perspective, Israel really has three options at the moment. As long as there isn't a sudden willingness by the Palestinians to talk genuine peace and change their attitude and rhetoric. Option A, the obvious one, just leave. Create the two-state solution, withdraw to basically almost pre-67 armistice lines in the West Bank, build up the separation barrier, and leave the Palestinians to complete self-rule in the West Bank and Gaza, a new country called, I don't know, the Republic of Palestine. This option is demanded, right, by most non-Israelis around the world who are not knowledgeable about the real conflict, because who ends up running Gaza and the West Bank? Dictator or dictators, where neither has allowed elections in the past 18 years. And given all we know today, and based on the past 25 years, internally, the Palestinian Authority will not be able to uh, quell rival groups such as Hamas. And now that there would be a lack of common enemy in their midst, in other words, Israel, it'll lead to infighting and bloodshed amongst themselves. And either Hamas or an extremist group will acquire control of the West Bank, or at best, the West Bank would be controlled by the PA as today, and Gaza would be ruled by Hamas. And therefore, Palestine would essentially be two states, incapable of coordination amongst themselves. And as the historian Benny Morris explains, in 1948, the Palestinian Arabs had no centralized organizations, no ability to establish their own mature institutions, and therefore no vision or almost any interest of how to build their country. And since Hamas and the PA hate each other, let's be honest, it's never going to go anywhere. 
And of course, the most obvious and problematic issue for Israel is that Hamas remains committed to eliminating Israel altogether, and therefore the violence will continue. It hasn't stopped in 20 years. There have been over 25,000 missile attacks. I mean, I think the most obvious issue with the Palestinians having a state is that as a country, they'll be able to buy tanks, they'll be able to attack helicopters to use against Israel. They'll be a real, they'll have a military. Right. Imagine if 7th of October had Chas Shalom existed with a full army attacking Israel. And in addition to that, externally, Arab countries in the Middle East will vie for influence, control, and that adds to the instability. And Israel will now be a tiny um, sliver of land. It's as little as nine miles wide in some places between the West Bank and, and the Mediterranean, and that leaves it very vulnerable. Beyond which, the perhaps you can call them relatively speaking, smaller issues. Israel isn't going to withdraw from Jerusalem. The Palestinian refugees' rights of return to an Israel which is now 30% smaller is definitely not going to happen. So the Palestinian demands aren't being satisfied. You will have achieved nothing and lead to far bigger nightmare scenarios for Israel. Shortly after that, Israel would basically cease to exist. And the UN isn't going to help. You know, you could say, you know, but maybe there should be a UN peacekeeping force in place between Hamas and Israel. That's not going to let a single Jew sleep at night, not when the Hamas charter openly calls for the destruction of the entirety of Israel and when it now has tanks, and not when the UN has an automatic two-thirds pro-Palestinian majority out of the 193 countries. No one in Israel is going to risk that. The two-state solution being carried out by Israel unilaterally is only one thing, mass suicide, Hassan Shalom. You know, I saw in Sderot, CCTV footage of parents being killed in front of their children. The father was killed. You see a little girl run away, very little girl. And her mother gets into another car and they go around the corner and, and the mother is killed there. The two children somehow survive hidden under a blanket. Hamas is hunting down Jews. You're going to let them have a country next door yours? I was told a few days ago when I was on the Rabbanut army base where all the victims have been taken for identification that of the 24 Rabonim working there two months ago, 14 have dropped out because of the trauma of what they have to do. And the idiocy of the pro-Palestinian voice that claims that the reason they are like this is just because they've been oppressed. I mean, the 7th of October clearly showed the world that that wasn't the case. It's like uh, saying that the Nazis were oppressed. There's a certain type of atrocity that you carry out that shows who you are in essence. The real identity. Okay, so that's option A. Option B create one single binational state of both the, the Palestinian Arabs and the Jews. And, you know, this is an approach which is often spoke about in the left fringe. Well, what happens next? The Arabs still haven't committed to either peace or accepting the Jews as equals. And initially, there'll probably be as many Muslims as Jews, 7 million of each. But there are 460 million Arabs in the world and 14 million Jews. So within, I don't know, a year remembering that Israel is a far more um, desirable place to live than many Arab countries, there's going to be a Muslim-Arab majority. And, of course, if the right of uh, refugee return is made, then that majority would probably happen within a couple of months, which leaves the Jews at the mercy of those who've historically started, I don't know, four, seven wars with them, unapologetically so, and who've shown no tolerance of Jews. Most Palestinians and Arab Muslims do not want to share a country with Jews. And in every majority Muslim country around the world, there are very few remaining Jews. 
And these Arabs are heavily anti-Western too. You know, everybody is pretending that's not so because they don't want to annoy, uh, you know, Qatar and, and Iran too much. Oh, and who's going to get Israel's nuclear capabilities? And generally, none of the Middle Eastern countries have a good track record with minorities and with, you know, quote unquote others, which is why the average Israeli Arab is happy to live in Israel. It's the best country in the Middle East when it comes to religious freedom, to economic and social opportunity, to democracy. So basically, Israel would be giving up its entire existence, the only Jewish state in the world, its historic identity, its security. It's in a way way worse than solution A because Israel would have been given up its rights to independence. There's no way back from that. Exactly. Now, let me add something to both of these solutions. Let me share a little bit more data. 70% of Palestinians oppose a two-state solution. They're only 27% in favor. 76%, as opposed to 21%, oppose a one-state solution in which the two sides enjoy equal rights. They don't want it. So those out there suggesting this either know literally nothing or simply they want the Jews exterminated. Option C is now the only one, which is maintaining the status quo until the region stabilizes and a viable peace partner emerges who really wants a two-state solution. Now, it's the least popular in the short term and in the public media and for foreign politicians because nothing changes in the now. But it's the only realistic option for Israelis. Israelis will have to deal with terror attacks ongoing. But there's no threat to its very existence because it responds to the attacks and the majority of citizens are safe, but obviously at a cost, as we see currently. But as long as Israel has no confidence that Palestinians will negotiate in true faith to create a stable and peaceful country and accept Jews as equal and that Israel has a right to a land, Israel has to make the straightforward calculation that option C is the least bad of the options on the table. Uh, you know, the Palestinians need to give up this idea of the river to the sea. They've got to be committed to cracking down on terror. They've got to be really willing to have peace. It's not likely, though, is it? Well, listen, uh, Sadat in Egypt waged war against Israel in 1973, and he signed a peace deal in 77. Not impossible. Yeah. I mean, option D may be to force 5 million Arabs out of Gaza and the West Bank, especially those who have been refugees for generations and are not interested in moving beyond that. But I note you didn't give an option D. That was spoken about in 67, but not today. It couldn't happen. The world wouldn't allow it. And, you know, therefore, it's unlikely to happen until uh, Mashiach. And as things stand, the narrative is very reminiscent, biblically, of Lovan and Yaakov. Yaakov, in Persians Vayetze, has been working for Lovan for 20 years. Lovan has ripped him off dozens of times, especially by having him work for seven years and giving him the wrong wife. That's seven years of his life he's taken from him. And at the end of the Sedra, Yaakov leaves, and Lovan comes after him and demands to search Yaakov's belongings for what he's taken from Lovan. And Yaakov says, yeah, no problem. Do a full search. See if one thing here belongs to you. Because after 20 years in his household, Yaakov is so honest that he knows that he's taken nothing. And indeed, Lovon finds nothing. And Yaakov finally sort of loses it. He gets angry and he says, you've ripped me off for 20 years. They're Esrim Shona, just like Israel at the UN. And I've never given you cause for it at all. Do you know what Lovon's reaction is? He says to Yaakov, you think nothing here is mine? Everything here is mine. It's all mine. 
That's the Palestinian narrative. And he's called Lovon. You know, he's white. He's as pure as the driven snow. He's unfazed by the fact that it's all based on distortion and the UN doesn't care. Now, I will say, going back to last week and the 48 war, did Israel want the local Arabs out at the time? Yes. And after the first armistice, there was no question of letting them back in. And this caused on occasion excesses of violence by Israel? Possibly. But within the fog of war, and we need to be honest, we need to have a perspective and we need to know the numbers that were involved. And that's why the word massacres is completely incorrect. We reject that word. And therefore, answering an overall question of the last 75 years, has Israel got it right all the time? Obviously not. You can't have a 100% record. But 85% to 90% of difficult decisions? Absolutely. And finally, perhaps, regarding empathy across the world, there's an organization called Stop Antisemitism, which examined 194 medical schools and associations in the United States. A hundred of them posted positive responses to the conflict in Ukraine. Only 15 of them posted, out of these 194, statements positively regarding Israel. And these are officially humanitarian organizations. To give you an example, one wrote about the Ukraine, I quote, the shock of violence perpetuated against innocent, peaceful individuals has been harrowing to witness. We honor their bravery in the face of such suffering and the spiritual strength they are demonstrating by protecting their populace. But this organization appears to have nothing to say about the shock of violence perpetuated against innocent and peaceful Israelis, nor is there praise to the Israeli people for their bravery or the spiritual strength they demonstrate by protecting their populace. And to many, that might be troubling, but to a Jew and perhaps to a Jewish historian, it is unfortunately unsurprising. Rabbi Hirsch, that brings our Yishmol versus Yishrol series to an end. For the diehard history buffs, we'll be back next week to our regular schedule. We covered this war in detail due to obviously the importance of having a factually correct historical perspective on this. And the fact that our most listened to series yet proves the importance and I want to thank you on personally and on behalf of our listeners for all the information and the research you've done and the perspective you've given us. Just want to once again reiterate and explain to our listeners that the questions I've asked throughout these series may have sounded slightly provocative, but obviously the idea was to understand the narrative that pro-Palestinians are pushing and to answer why it has absolutely zero factual basis. And thank you for doing that over these past couple of months. Thank you. I want to conclude with one thing, which is an overriding message. Our main focus is inward to our fellow Jews, which means Avas Yisrael. While we were out in Israel, we met two fathers, both religious, both who have a son who is a hostage. We met each one separately on different days, and both had one absolute overriding message, Avas Yisrael, do it with all Jews, and I mean all Jews. Out of the two and a half hours we spoke to them, probably 45 minutes was about this. We are finished without it, we triumph with it. And Avas Yisrael, particularly for the hostages themselves, starts with tefillah. I was told, and I can't go into details, that Israel is doing things to get the hostages back. But they are so dependent on HaKadosh Baruch Hu for this, so clearly so, that tefillah isn't just important, it's possibly the only way that they will come back. Take two minutes a day and just focus a tefillah for the return, the safe return of these hostages. 
Maybe come home soon and we've come full circle. That's how we started when we were still in a state of shock. Then you spoke about the importance of Twitter. And now, although the state of shock possibly has lessened somewhat, still Twillers are as needed as they ever were. So thank you again, Rabbi Hirsch. We're going to be turning to Rabbi Tetz now. We recorded the session with him um, just a couple of days ago to hear a perspective on the spiritual future in Eretz Yisrael. And now we're going to go over to Rabbi Tetz. Rabbi Tetz, thank you very much again for taking out your valuable time to join us. It's always a pleasure to have you on here and to hear your wisdom. We've spoken for the past few weeks, couple of months really, about the major war that's ongoing. And I'd like to ask you, Rabbi Tetz, how do we understand the massive enemies we have? We Jews throughout the centuries, there's been so much blood spilled as a result of the other worldly religions, namely Christianity and specifically now Islam. We're facing now extreme anti-Semitism around the world. So if you could speak about that and also specifically, is there any benefit of Christianity and Islam being monotheistic exactly like we are? Or, you know, do we just look at the amount of death that has happened throughout the centuries and they're just, you know, they're just our old enemies? Yes, thank you, Rabbi Reisner, for this opportunity. And that, of course, is the correct question here, to look back or broaden the scope to a cosmic canvas, if you like, see the brush strokes painted on that larger canvas. And in fact, your question about Christianity and Islam is addressed by none other than the Rambam, Maimonides himself. And he says something fascinating. He asks the question, why is it that we have these enormous populations of a nemesis of the Jewish people on two fronts, namely Christianity and Islam? And he says something stark and striking. He says that indeed these are the monotheistic religions derived from us. And the purpose, he says, amazingly, is to prepare the way for a messianic era. The way he puts it is that we are the ones bringing a messianic message to the world, but how difficult would it be for the world to accept a transition, an inversion if you like, a total inversion, into a perfect world with no enmity, no wars, people helping each other, a radical revision of human consciousness and human competitiveness into a world of harmony and idyllic peace. There'll be a very difficult notion for people to even get their heads around. Says the Rambam, what has happened is, for many centuries, we have a world dominated, a Western world, dominated by two theologies, which teach monotheism, but more specifically teach that that monotheistic pathway will end in a messianic perfection. And therefore, says Rambam, you have the whole world talking about a Mashiach. You have the whole world talking about a messianic personality who will come to perfect the world, be the, the fulcrum, if you like, the hinge on which the door swings open to a new world. And therefore, says the Rambam in his almost poetic language, in the furthest reaches of the smallest islands, in the distant seas, as he puts it, you have people talking about the Mashiach. And he's being quite literal. We know that missionaries, Christian missionaries, have reached out to indeed to the farthest reaches of the smallest islands in the largest seas. And therefore, there's no corner of the Western world today where you won't find people talking about a messianic, a messianic idea. Of course, we understand a lot of their teaching is distorted. But, says the Rambam, the core idea of a godly world introduced by a messianic personality is now a common currency throughout the world. And therefore, when the, says the Rambam, unashamedly and openly, he says, when the real Mashiach appears, the ground will have been broken, the way will have been paved, and people will see immediately, and he puts it in quite, again, stark terms, that what they were taught by their forebears was lies and deception. And yet the core idea of a messianic correction 
will be apparent. And so the gain, as you put it, or your advantage of having these terribly warring and anti-Semitic, violently, cruelly anti-Semitic movements is that amazingly and paradoxically, along with all of that and all the suffering we have undergone, is an underlying message of a messianic perfection. And so that when it happens, it will be easily accepted and in fact, probably even overnight. And you just explained that Christianity and Islam are potentially the most similar to us. They're, they're messianic, they're monotheistic. Is this why they're so popular in the world? And historically, they've always been the largest religions because they are closer to the truth. That is more speculative. I mean, we certainly know, and they certainly acknowledge openly that they're based on us, right? As you know, the names in the Quran, Dawood, which is David, Musa, which is Moshe, Yunus, which is Yonah, we certainly know that they openly based on our scripture. They certainly go back to our founding principles of our history. Christianity is quite explicitly based on what they call the Old Testament, of course, and therefore all three of our Western religions agree that there was a Sinai revelation, and we all take that as our starting point. Yes, they add or distort or change or modify later, but in fact, indeed, all three of us go back to the same founding principles. Now, everyone is currently talking about depriving us from our rights to the land. They're talking about from the river to the sea. This is being protested by hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. Can I just ask, what is our genuine claim to the land? This, as you know, is a long discussion, and Rabbi Hirsch, no doubt, has touched on it, and um, he's very, very well qualified to talk about it. But perhaps the most important thing, and in all Torah discussions, we always try to go back to the source. The source, of course, is the Torah itself. It doesn't get better than that. And the very first Rashi, very first Rashi in the Torah, addresses your question. And Rashi says, why does the Torah, quoting, of course, a Medrash, as he always, always quoting the, the, the sages, why does the Torah begin with the creation of the world? To the uninitiated ear, that sounds like a remarkable question. Of course, the Torah should begin with creation. Where else do you begin? But that's not the Jewish view. The Jewish view is that the Torah is a book of instruction, and therefore it should begin with instructions. And that is a whole book later in the book of Exodus. Book of Shemais, the Torah begins with mitzvahs and commandments, whether it's keeping Shabbos and uh, various mitzvahs that the Torah begins to talk about there. Why a whole book dealing with the creation of the world? That's not a question of spiritual instruction explicitly. Rashi answers, in the words of the Medrash, to teach you that the world belongs to God because he made it. You know, in, in philosophy, there's a discussion about what gives you ownership. And halakhically also, interesting discussion, what gives you ownership? And the various methods of ownership, acquisition, buying, purchase, etc., all agree that the deepest mode of ownership is creation. If you create something yourself, indeed in Jewish law, even if you modify something sufficiently that it's considered new, it becomes yours. But certainly if you create something from nothing at all, it belongs to you. And therefore, since God created the world, it belongs to him. That's uncontested. And then it goes on to say that he created the world and he gave it to whom he wanted. And Rashi quotes the Chazal, our sages that say that God created the world, including the land of Israel. And when it suited him, he took it away from those he wanted to, and he gave it to those he wished. Interestingly, our claim is not that we were there first. Not at all. The claim, the Torah history is that the Canaanites were there. The Canaanites nothing to do with the present inhabitants of the Middle East. But the Canaanites who were there originally were incredibly immoral, steeped in immorality and perversion. And God took it, in Rashi's words, God took it away from them and gave it to us. And therefore, our historic claim to the land is based on biblical sources. And the source is, again, not that we were there first, but that it was taken away from the wicked and immoral and given to us. 
And uh, you probably know, Rabbi Reisner, I don't have to tell you this, that even the totally secular early Zionists used to wave a Tanakh around, no less than Ben-Gurion in the early phase of the United Nations, waved a Bible in front of them and saying the land is ours because of this. That, not that the early Zionists observed Jewish law, but certainly knew that our historical claim goes back 4,000 years. And therefore, there's no question that we are certainly there long before anybody else in current, in current history. But our original claim, of course, is that it was given to us. Rashi seems to be saying that this isn't a, the reason why Hashem wrote the Sefer Gracious isn't for us to know it. Rather, this is a method to teach people who come to claim that the land isn't ours. How is that the most effective method of teaching? Sure, I mean, when we try nowadays and, and show the Bible in front of the world, I'm like, well, who cares about something that was written thousands of years ago? Yep. And uh, how is that actually an effective teaching method nowadays? Yes, well, I presume you mean by your question, if we have it in our Bible, it gives our legitimate right to the land. Where does that oblige anyone else? You know, you know, we wave out our document. In. Right. And the answer goes back to after the first question we discussed today. If we're talking about the West, who are the ones who lay claim to the land, right? As you know, crusades were fought over the land. And uh, hotly contested, and certainly the Arab world certainly claims it as theirs, as part of what they call the Waqf. The Waqf is the, so to speak, hallowed area that Muhammad himself tread from Gibraltar uh, all the way to the east. And since the land of Israel is part of that, they claim it as part of their honor and dignity in terms of their possession. But if we go back to the first thing we discussed today, and that is that the two monotheistic religions in the triad, namely Christianity and Islam, they both accept our Bible, which means that if we wave that under their noses and say it says right here that the land was given to us, they can't deny that. It says it in the same book that their religions are based on. Now, they can attempt to distort the book. But uh, if they take the book at face value and read the words as it says, there's no question that the father of the Jewish people, Abraham, he became the father of all nations, is certainly the one to whom and to his sons the land was given. And finally, to leave with a religious message, we know that the final message, the real message is, Ein lanu have no one to rely on but Hashem. And the reason is, you see explicitly, we ranged against a whole world, even a war of self-defense we're not entitled to, how insulting and patronizing is it to tell the state of Israel that they have a right to defend themselves? How patronizing. You have a right to defend yourself. I and mean, what kind of question is that? If the Cubans started shooting rockets into, into Florida, the Americans would demolish the place. They wouldn't ask for permission to defend themselves. Can you imagine? Civilians, no civilians, they'd wipe it out like Dresden or like Cologne or like Hiroshima, Nagasaki. What are you talking about? And therefore, it is clearly not, of course, we need to fight the political battle we need to fight the Hasbara battle, which our Hirsch does so well, the public relations battle. We need to fight the military battle, tragically and unfortunately, but that's not where the redemption will come from. We come back to the point we began with. We are waiting, aided by our enemies, for a messianic world, aided in terms of the vision that they established, that we have taught, and we look forward by spiritual means to reach a world of final peace and perfection. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for coming in again and sharing with us your valuable and deep insights. Please send all feedback and questions to podcast.jd.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.